Here's my question for you this morning. At the end of your life, what would you like to be able to say about it? That's a pretty serious question. At the end of your life, what would you like to be able to say about it? What would you like people to say about you? And maybe this question's on my mind because we've been having so many people who have been passing away and going on to glory. And uh, I think it's also on my mind because when you look at Titus, he's talking about kind of what's the most important thing for you to be doing in and with your one and only life. I think most people want their life to count for something, you know, to feel like you did the best you could with the time God gave you on this earth in your one and only life. Feel like your life made a difference. And hopefully you left the world a little better place than you found it. But much of the Bible is about how to lead such a life. One that's profitable and productive. Not merely in an economic sense, but a life of loving and vital relationships, of connections with other people, of contentment and meaning and value and purpose. And this is true of the part of the Bible that we've been in these last few weeks. First and second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral letters because these letters are written to an individual. They're not written to a whole congregation. And the subject of the letters is how to lead a church in the proper or right way so that people will live profitable and productive lives as part of God's family. And the purpose of the letters to Timothy and Titus is to guide pastoral activity, which is why the duties and responsibilities of church leaders are written more about in Timothy and Titus than they are anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's interesting that even though that's the case, the metaphor or imagery of a pastor or shepherd don't appear in any of these three letters. So last week, if you read through 2 Timothy, you heard how the faith that lived in Timothy first lived in his grandmother, Lois, then in his mother, Eunice, and now lives in him. And Timothy and Titus are, it appears, among the third generation now of disciples of Jesus. And the issues of how are we transmitting the faith from our generation to the next generation are becoming really important. And you have to remember, all three of these letters are written at a time when the long-term viability of the church was a very open question. They, they didn't have huge buildings like we do. They didn't have large institutions. They didn't have a lot of money. They were countercultural on the outside. And we know from history that things were about to get a lot worse for them because they were going to be entering a period of persecution. So that gives you a little bit of the context of the environment. What do we know about Titus as a person, as a man? Titus was a Gentile, probably converted by Paul himself, who spoke of him as my true child, my true child in a common faith. That says something about their bond. And Titus is frequently mentioned in the letters of Paul, especially in Galatians and 2 Corinthians, as one of his trusted helpers. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, 
Paul says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker in your service. Now, we have terrific volunteers and staff members here at BBC. And sometimes people get asked to do things that are challenging, even spur of the moment. Well, how would you like to get this assignment that Paul gave Titus? Paul asked Titus, he sends him on two urgent missions to the unruly congregation in Corinth. The first time he goes, he is bringing a very confrontational letter from Paul. And I'm sure he had to basically come in and say, uh, <coughs> Paul has some things he'd like to share with you. Boom. Then the second task is Paul sends him to raise money, to raise a special offering to help the church in Jerusalem as they're struggling with the poor. So can you imagine, I'm going to come in and tell you all the things you're doing wrong that you need to stop and you need to change. And by the way, I need you to give to this offering. That's not easy. That's the task Paul gave to Titus. He trusted him. And now Titus has been left on the island of Crete. And he's been given the responsibility to oversee the organizations of churches on that island and to put people in place to lead them. Again, a significant assignment. And that's where he is when he receives this letter. He's on the island of Crete. And we know that later, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he ends up going to Dalmatia, what today is known as Croatia. So Titus, very significant early church leader. And the letter to Titus provides advice about what kinds of persons are qualified to lead the church. And it's a little embarrassing, you know, as it's someone who's kind of technically a church leader. I mean, this is what we're supposed to be like. But he says he gives warnings about false teaching. He gives guidance for different groups in the church. This is how for older, older men, this thing, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves. He has specific instruction for all of them. But then he says, in light of Jesus' work of redemption on the cross on their behalf, what are you supposed to do as a result of that? And the answer is, and Doreen read it for us, be zealous for good deeds. Right? And then we get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 says it's the duty of Christians to be good citizens because of God's grace shown to them and emphasizes the importance of right belief leading to good deeds in Jesus' name. The whole idea of having good sound doctrine is it leads you to do good in Jesus' name. And the letter warns the church about becoming entangled in arguments that divert energy and distract attention away from the cause of Christ. And that brings us to Titus chapter 3, where Titus is being told what to share with the people in the church about how they are to live as followers of Christ. Listen to Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, be gentle. And show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But, in the Bible there are some big buts, and this is one of them. But, 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. I desire that you insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to do what? Devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and are profitable to everyone. But avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes divisions. Since you know that such a person is perverted and sinful, being self-condemned. And let people learn to devote themselves to good works in order to meet urgent needs so that they may not be unproductive. Well, I know that's a long scripture, and there's a lot of stuff in it, and I can only give you so much of it. But in these verses from Titus chapter 3, we really have a summary of Christian belief and what it should produce. It's about who we were, what God did, and what you are to do. And I'm just going to talk about those three things this morning. So, who we were. You may think that you live in a time filled with more violence and rudeness and hatred than most, and it's pretty bad, let's face it. But in verse 3, writing about himself and members of the church... Paul writes that, and we'll say it again, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. You notice how it goes from bad to worse there in those eight different things. And one of the things I think about is, Joe, how'd you like to pastor that church? Like that group of people? I mean, whew, I don't know. But that description that Paul is saying that describes him and his companions in the church, I mean, isn't that still a fairly accurate description of a lot of human behavior? I think so. Even a brief look at the news on any given day shows Paul's description is still fairly apt. But with all the terrible and incomprehensible things that go on in the world that drive you crazy or you think are awful, part of what it's important to remember, which Paul is modeling here, it's important to remember your own failures so you don't rant or go on or despair about other people's sins while being blind to your own. We also don't want to grow hopeless or cynical about the power of the Spirit to change even the most challenging person. And many of us would have to admit we're probably not successful at even doing the few things 
that Paul mentions in the first couple of verses of Titus chapter 3. Speak e think about the last week. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show every courtesy to everyone. I would guess many of us struggle to do all of those things this week. Some of you, maybe even this morning. And Paul uses those eight terms that go from worse, they get worse and worse, to track the history of human sin. And this description of humanity was accurate the first century. It's still accurate today. And Paul says it's into the very midst of this mess of human sin and ignorance and selfishness and violence that God's grace appears. That's what's so amazing about it. And that leads to the second thing, what God did. Paul says the undeserved, unmerited, loving kindness of God, our Savior, appears right in the middle of the mess of the world and in the middle of the mess of our lives. And thanks to God's mercy, Paul says, new life and new birth that put you right with God are available to all. And God saves us by a renewing bath of baptism and cleansing us from sin and enabling a new life in the spirit in which we become the beneficiaries of a great inheritance. I saw a bumper sticker that said, where there's a will, that's not what it said. It said, where there's a will, put me in it. I thought, okay, all right, all right. That got a smile out of me. You know, and, and Paul's saying that's what God has done. That's what God has done. You're not saved by any wonderful deeds you have done. And we have wonderful people in our church who do a lot of wonderful things. And you're wonderful and you look marvelous. But you're not saved by any wonderful deeds that you have done. But by God's mercy in Christ. That's it. And that's the message of the gospel. Cleansing, forgiveness, birth. Washing in baptism and new life by the power of the Spirit. And the source of our hope is that we believe God's word about who we were. We don't duck it. We admit it. We're sinners. We're broken people. We're not perfect. We don't have everything together absolutely in our lives. We believe that word about who we were, but we also believe the word about what God has done for us in Christ. Regardless of who we were, regardless of everything we did wrong. And so the question is, based on who we were and what God did anyway, for our sake, that leads to the third thing. So what are you to do? And this is what you are to do. And the key connecting phrase in Titus chapter 3, and it also appears in Titus chapter 2, is good works. Good works. Now it's too bad that some people associate good works with a mistaken idea that we can work our way into heaven. And I've had conversations with people sometimes as people have neared the end of their life where someone would say to me basically, I, I hope I've done enough good, you know, that I'll be able to get into heaven. And I always tell them, well, you know, the honest truth is you haven't. <laughs> it's just the truth. You haven't, but the good news is you can go anyway. Um, and, and that is good news, right? And... 
because we can't work our way into heaven. And we all should be, all should be clear about that, right? We don't work our way into heaven. God has taken the initiative in mercifully and lovingly reaching out to Jesus Christ through whom we are forgiven, reconciled to God, and empowered and commanded to live a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Christian doctrine 101, right? That's it. And humility marks our life of discipleship because we recognize how undeserving we are and how far God has gone to extend the possibility of new life to all of us in Jesus. So you're saved by God for a purpose. And that purpose is beyond just personal, eternal fire insurance. And all the letters in the New Testament make clear over and over again what that purpose is. To do good in Jesus' name. Now, it's unfortunate that some people use the phrase do-gooders in a negative way or like a put-down kind of way. Because according to many of the letters of the New Testament, good works, doing good, is the way you demonstrate that you're saved. Okay? It's the way you demonstrate you're saved. It's the way you express your godliness. It's the way others know you have a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ because I see it in how you treat other people. Good works are the way godliness expresses itself in the wider world. You remember Jesus says, let others see your good works so that, what, they can tell you how wonderful you are? No, so that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. I mean, this is just what we're supposed to do. And so your good works are the expression of your relationship with God, with Christ, your priorities, and your attitudes. So you're not saved by your good works but your good works demonstrate you are saved. Does that make sense? Listen to Titus 3, 8, and 14 again. He says, be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for ev to everyone. Let people learn to devote themselves to good works in order to meet urgent needs so that they may not be unproductive. We devote ourselves to good works to meet urgent needs so that we're productive followers of Christ and productive members of the church in our communities. And you're not to waste time, Paul says, in pointless quarrels and stupid controversies and dissensions and anything that's divisive. And Paul's writing with a sense of urgency, and you can hear it in the letter if you read it out loud. Speak evil of no one, he says. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show courtesy to everyone. It's a way of saying life's too short. There's too much important work to be done. I mean, done. And Christians, I mean, we all know this. If we've been around the church for a number of years in our life, Christians can be guilty of spending time arguing about and debating about things that unchurched people couldn't care less about. <laughs> Instead of devoting ourselves to good works to meet urgent needs. And Paul says good works are 
excellent. They're profitable for everyone to be a part of, whether it's telling others about God's good news in Christ or making a meal or sharing food or listening to somebody or visiting folks who are grieving or sick or giving someone a ride or helping with a practical need or giving your time and service as a volunteer, as so many of you do. Supporting our mission partners, I mean, who help with water and food and education. I mean, there's so many things we're called to do. We're to be energetically engaged in doing good. Because it's profitable and excellent, Paul says. When you respond to needs, it's an opportunity for you to grow in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let me close with a story. A man named Sundar became a convert to Christianity many years ago, and he decided to stay in India and to be a missionary, to bear witness to Jesus in his life. And one late afternoon, Sundar was traveling on foot high in the Himalayan mountains with a Buddhist monk, and it was bitterly cold, bitterly cold. And the monk warned him with night coming on that they were in danger of freezing to death if they didn't reach the monastery before darkness fell. And it so happened that as they crossed over a a narrow path above a steep cliff, they heard a cry for help. And deep down in the ravine, a man had fallen and he lay wounded. His leg was broken and he couldn't walk. My sons always tell me whatever I preach on happens to me. And so the monk warned Sundar. He said, don't stop. God has brought this man to his fate. He must work it out himself. That's the tradition. Let us hurry on before we perish. But Sundar said, it's my tradition that God has brought me here to help my brother. I can't abandon him. So the monk set off through the snow, which had started to fall heavily. Sundar climbed down to where the wounded man was. And since the man had a broken leg, Sundar took a blanket from his knapsack and he made a sling out of it. And he got the man into it and hoisted him onto his back. And then he became the began the painful and the arduous climb back out of the ravine to get back to the path. And it took him a long time, and he was drenched with perspiration, and he finally got back on the path and struggling to make his way through the increasingly heavy falling snow. And now it was dark, and he had all he could do to find the path, but he persevered. And though he was faint from fatigue and overheated from the exertion, he finally saw the lights of the monastery. And then he nearly stumbled and fell. Not from weakness, he stumbled over an object lying in the path. And he he bent down on one knee and he brushed the snow from the body of the monk who had frozen in the snow within sight of the monastery. And kneeling there, Sundar said aloud to himself the scripture from Luke chapter 9, verse 24, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. And he understood what Jesus meant. And he was glad that he had decided to lose his life for another. Years later, When Sundar had his own disciples that he was training in the Christian tradition, they asked him this question. Master, what is life's most difficult task? How would you answer that question? What is life's most difficult 
task. Sundar's answer was to have no burden to carry. The letter to Titus teaches that the grace of God trains us to do good, to bear other people's burdens, to care for people in need, to contribute to our community and our society in a positive way. And by doing so, we give glory to God and be we bear witness to the truth of what we believe. If you want to live a profitable and productive life, it's very simple. Do good in Jesus' name and help bear the burdens of others. Please join me in prayer. God, in the face of all our realities, we are the people who heal each other, who grow strong together, who name the truth, who know what it means to live in community, moving toward a common dream for a new heaven and a new earth in the power of the love of God, the company of Jesus Christ, and the leading of the Holy Spirit.